stars. Can you tell me who will die? War in the stars. Is Luke or Ray the last Jedi? Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing La La Land. Well, I guess I'm going to be discussing La La Land. I'm going to be sharing my thoughts on the film that's most likely to uh, win Best Picture this year. And I'm going to be giving my reaction to the Oscar nominations that just dropped this past week. But before we get into any of that, you all know that I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Talked about it on this podcast probably more than... Probably more than most franchises other than you know just brands like Marvel um, so this week we learned the title of episode 8 at long last this is the long awaited or not so long awaited but hotly anticipated sequel to J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens this one is going to be written and directed by Ryan Johnson who you might know for uh, his work on Looper which I guess would probably be which would be the most relevant as far as Star Wars is concerned, considering uh, that it's not a neo-noir set in a high school or uh, you know any kind of an indie film. It's just directly in sci-fi, so it kind of gives an idea of what he, what he can bring to sci-fi tropes, um, Star Wars being space operas and Looper being time travel. So we learned that his film will actually be called Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. So... Of course, because the Star Wars fan community is the way it is, um, and myself being part of that, there was a lot of response and analysis and uh, breakdowns happening. Uh, not so much mental breakdowns, although I'm sure there's probably some of that. Just trying to figure out exactly what that, what that means. Um, the Last Jedi, of course, was a direct quote from the opening crawl of Episode 7, The Force Awakens as well as what uh, Supreme Leader Snoke refers to Luke Skywalker as. So everybody's speculating that this is basically Star Wars Episode Eight, Luke Skywalker, in a lot of ways. And that makes total sense because we're expecting the film to not only chronicle his training of Rey into the, the, into the light side of the Force, as well as answer a, a ton of questions as far as like where Luke has been these last several years since Kylo Ren's turned to the dark side, what he's been up to, why he was in exile, what he was maybe trying to accomplish, or if he was simply hiding out, which wouldn't exactly fit with Luke's character, at least the way we saw him in Return of the Jedi. Um, so more than likely, if he was in exile, and if rumors are true about the, the planet that he was on, is either the home of the Jedi or the location of the first Jedi temple, because that was what he was looking for, um, we can bet that Luke has probably been formulating his own plan to try and, and defeat the, uh, the dark side now taking the shape of the First Order. But then, of course, you know, Star Wars fans overthink it, as we tend to do. And Jedi is also uh, plural of, this, of the same word. This plural form of Jedi is Jedi. So people were also speculating that maybe in this title, the word Jedi actually refers to both he, both Luke and Rey, uh, as a, I don't know, as a unit, as a master and apprentice. Um, not exactly sure there's a whole lot of other, right now, evidence to back that up. I mean, right, right now I would say it's probably most likely that it's going to be referencing specifically Luke and not only him being the last, not, not saying that he's going to be the last Jedi by the end of the film, even though Star Wars films, if you pay attention to the titles, Usually, the title basically is almost a mild spoiler for what happens at the end of the movie. Phantom Menace ends with the the uh, Jedi becoming aware that there is a Sith Lord out there pulling the strings. A quote-unquote Phantom Menace. Attack of the Clones ends with the clone troopers descending. Revenge of the Sith, we all know how that ended. A New Hope, etc., etc. So, um, it could just mean that this film is basically going to hinge on Luke specifically, and he's going to be the driving force of the story. Which would back up some people's theories that, well, you know, if, if Episode 7 was all Han Solo, this would be more Luke Skywalker. And then Episode 9 was initially intended to be more of Leia's story, which now has to be heavily retooled. Um, and we're not exactly sure, of course, what Episode 8 leaves them to, to work with for that film. 
but um, I think most likely it is a reference to Luke. I think that the fact, the fact that the title itself is in, um, or, or I guess Star Wars itself, the, the the Star Wars logo itself was in red font for the logo release that Lucasfilm put out there earlier this week. A lot of people are speculating what that means because previously it's usually the third film, so Revenge of the Initially Jedi slash Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Sith, and now this one. So I don't know if that means maybe this movie's gonna, maybe it's reflective of the fact that this film is gonna delve more into the moral complexities of the whole dichotomy between the light side and the dark side. If it's gonna be uh, maybe the darkest chapter of this of this trilogy. Um, but the fact that it has read and that's connoted with not only obviously death and violence. Uh, but also the dark side, as well as the title being a reference to Luke, I'd say there, that that does not bode well for Luke Skywalker making it through this movie. I mean, I'd really, I really hope that they don't do that, especially now that Episode Nine will likely not have Leia in any capacity, unless unless they find a creative way around that, um, using old footage or or. I don't know, some kind of body doubles to have her have make her have a cameo in there. But we've know that we know that Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm have officially confirmed that they will not be using a digital likeness of Leia from any from any era. So not Princess or General Leia, any of that, at least for the time being. Uh, whether that changes down the line or not, we're not sure. But as of now, I'd say that this it, it does sort of ind- indicate to me that Ryan Johnson is really honing this on the the Luke story um, specifically and kind of developing that as much as possible and letting that take this focus um, in this film more than the more than the other two in the in the trilogy which if that's the case in episode eight you know has Luke exit the story or at least be demoted in a way to a force ghost or promoted I mean it depends how you want to see it it's it's all about as Obi-Wan pointed out so long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's all about your point of view. Um, but if Episode Eight does see Luke sort of exit the franchise in a sense, and Leia potentially exit the franchise in a sense, maybe that would make sense uh, from a narrative standpoint if we're going to have Episode Nine then focus on Rey's journey as well as Kylo Ren's, and then, of course, you know Finn and Poe Dameron sort of in there as the secondary, uh, secondary characters to the main light and dark conflict. That would actually sort of... That would actually echo what they did with the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, because if you, you know, the f- first six of those movies, it's all about, I mean, obviously there's a, it's more of an ensemble than this, but it really hinges on Harry and his mentorship with, uh, you know, his mentorship by Dumbledore. And that relationship, this almost father-son, Obi-Wan-Luke type of deal going on with them. And, uh, you know, obviously, spoilers for Harry Potter, if for some reason you're a fan of this stuff and haven't watched those or read the books at this point, I don't know what to tell you, but, uh, you know, Dumbledore exits at the end of Half-Blood Prince, leaving one book, or, you know, in the case of the films, two films, uh, basically one story left for Harry to sort of face Voldemort on his own, so maybe that's where they're going with, um, with this Star Wars trilogy, maybe they're going to have Luke come in there, be the mentor, and then sort of fade off fade away so that Rey has to stand up for herself and face Kylo Ren that way and uh, I don't know that if they're going to have if they're going to kill Luke off as much as I really don't want to see that happen because Luke Skywalker is, is obviously one of the most iconic film heroes of all time and, and I love Mark Hamill to death especially with all this all this uh, Trumpster stuff he's been doing with the Joker quote uh, reading the Donald Trump tweets as the Joker which has been crazily uh, it's been in, insanely entertaining to listen to um it just seems like a great person and i love to keep him involved in the franchise as long as possible as much as that you know that's how i feel about it maybe that's maybe in a way that's a stronger story is having him drop out after episode eight you know it's hard to say based on the fact that we don't really know anything about this film other than it takes place pretty much right after episode seven and it's going to deal heavily with ray and luke and and you know the resistance is continuing struggles against the First Order, especially now that the Republic, the New Republic, was essentially wiped out in The Force Awakens. So, uh, again, it's all speculation right now. The Last Jedi could be read a couple different ways, but, yeah, I really think that that does not, does not 
signal anything good coming for Luke in the future, which, you know, could be the, the, the meaning, the double meaning of the title. And, you know, there was all this talk of when Rogue One came out and then Gareth Edwards, the director of that film, was talking about how Rogue One, well, it could, it could be multiple type, multiple uh, interpretations. Rogue One, the name of the call sign on the ship that the, the rebel team comes in. Also, Ray, uh, not Ray, um, Jin Erso is uh, the Rogue One. She's a, she rebels, as that line from the trailer, but not the film uh, indicated. It could be the film itself as the first standalone sort of being the odd man out and kind of forging a new path for the franchise. Um, maybe The Last Jedi is intended to start out meaning Luke and then end meaning Rey. Uh, we really have no idea at this point, but it's fun to speculate, and I will say that I'm glad that they did go with uh, they did go with a simple title. I don't like the ones... When they have the titles that are more than three or four words for Star Wars, it just feels cumbersome because you already have Star Wars... And then, you know, the full title being Star Wars Episode whatever, and then the full title. So when it's Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, Star Wars Episode uh, 5, the Empire Strikes Back. It's like they, they rarely exceed four. Actually, I don't think they have ever exceeded four words. So I like keeping, I like that they keeping it tight. Um, I, do all, I do sort of wish that the title had reflected another aspect of the mythology because we've already had Jedi mentioned in Episode 6. We've had Sith mentioned in episode 3. We had Force mentioned in episode 7. So I like to kind of spread the wealth a little bit. You could have mentioned the Resistance. You could have mentioned the First Order. You could have mentioned a number of other... Anything but midi-chlorians, basically, in the uh, the mythology. So the fact that they kind of did a repeat and hit the Jedi again, and that that we're on the last Jedi, two films after the Jedi just returned, essentially, um, is a little bit repetitive and therefore sort of annoying to me, but... It's such a minor quibble, and the title is sort of is very uh, short and to the point and, and slick. So it, it flows well, Star Wars The Last Jedi. So that's my thoughts on that. I just wanted to touch base on this because as a huge Star Wars fan, that was kind of a big deal because now we can stop referring to it to, oh, Star Wars Episode Eight untitled still. We don't know what, the, we don't know what they're going to call it. Now we can just know straight up. It's Star Wars The Last Jedi. And, um, you know, we do have 11 months until it comes in theaters, so I'm sure we'll... Uh, probably get a trailer. I mean, a lot of people think maybe April or May, but there's also some rumors going around that are saying Super Bowl. I feel like that's way too early. I don't think we're going to get anything for it yet. If we do, it'd probably be a 30-second teaser with the logo, a little bit of voiceover. Actually, there was a version of that that leaked that I did see on a uh, a friend's Facebook wall shared. Uh, So if if we do get anything, it will be like basically an announcement of the title. Um, because Lucasfilm had to have known that if they were going to release a trailer, or a teaser trailer rather, um, during the Super Bowl, that the title was going to leak out before that. So they, maybe they just released the title now to beat it to the punch. Um, regardless, we'll see. Obviously, can't wait for the film. I was a huge fan of Ryan Johnson's Looper. I love The Force Awakens, so I'm really excited to see where this goes. And, uh, you know, Daisy Ridley as Rey, I think, is one of the best heroes in, in the Star Wars universe uh, with just a single film appearance. So I think that's saying a lot and just a real testament to the strength of that film, um, the strength of Daisy Ridley's performance, and uh, just the fact that, you know, Star Wars is finally reflecting a l- little bit of a more diverse uh, galaxy. I mean, we had a galaxy of people and it's been mostly white guys with Leia and Padme thrown in there and, you know, Sam Jackson every once in a while. But for the most part, it's been all white men, which gets really boring. And I feel like Force Awakens and then Rogue One have really pushed that forward. So it's nice to have a, a, uh, a female lead running the, uh, running the current Star Wars trilogy. So that's my thoughts on Star Wars The Last Jedi. So let me know what you guys think of the title, if you like it, if you think it's terrible, if you wanted them to go with Shroud of the Dark Side or Rise of the First Order or something similar, uh, let me know. And, uh, you know, I'm always down to talk Star Wars anytime. All right, so now let's talk about La La Land. I finally got a chance to see this. I've been meaning to for a while. I mean, at least since, uh, I believe it hit, I believe it went wide December 9th. So since then, I was like, I need to go see this. I need to go see La La Land because I'd heard so much about it from the festivals where it, where it was playing and from all the all the critical response and everything and um you know knowing that it was a big awards contender so i finally got a chance to see it 
And uh, actually, it was the first movie that Kai and I brought um, our daughter Zoe, who's now seven weeks, uh, almost eight weeks old, uh, seven weeks old right now, um, who we brought to see her first movie and, you know, sat in the back of the theater and she actually pretty, pretty behaved herself pretty well most of the time, which was a surprise for a newborn. So, um, you know, she's got to get used to, she's got to get used to taking trips to the movie theater and in my estimation. So, yeah, so I finally saw La La Land and it was really great, actually. Uh, a lot of times when I hear a lot of positive, um, critical remarks about these kinds of films that are going to be awards contenders and the best picture talk and, and all of that. Um, it's easy to go in with an inflated, uh, expectations. Um, I mean, I think the most well-known case of this kind of thing when it comes to movies is probably the Phantom Menace, uh, where I feel like, I feel like a lot of people were still trying to convince themselves it was a decent movie years after it came out and not until a few years ago people were like yeah that's not it's not very good um let's just let it go uh and i know there's an entire generation that still holds that film in high regard um but you know it's all about it's all about personal experience and everything but as far as la la land uh i i for some reason if you have been living in iraq and haven't heard about this this is the third film from writer director damien chazelle <clears throat> Excuse me. Whose uh, last movie was Whiplash, which was the Miles Teller film with the J.K. Simmons that earned J.K. Simmons the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. That was actually probably, I would say, my favorite movie of 2014, if not like right up there. I also really loved Birdman, and I also really loved Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But it was uh, it was in the it was in the top three for me, if if nothing else. Um, so I was excited to see this and. I think gradually I've come to realize that I, I do enjoy musicals by and large. I used to say, oh, I like um, I like musicals on, on a case-by-case basis. But then every one, like almost all of the ones that I've seen, I realize, oh, I like that one. Oh, yeah, and that one. Yeah, that one's good. That, 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 oh, my God, I love that one. So um, I, I guess, yeah, I guess I have to sort of fess up and be like, yeah, I, 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 I am kind of a sucker for musicals. I've mentioned on the podcast before that Sing Street was my favorite movie of 2016. Um, La La Land, my, I don't quite love it as much as Sing Street. I don't know, something about Sing Street really hit me. But La La Land, you know, when I eventually retroactively go back and do my Best of 2016 uh, complete after I see films like Moonlight and Fences and Manchester by the Sea that I still haven't gotten a chance to, um, all Oscar nominees for Best Picture, and we'll get to that in a little bit. I, uh, I do think La La Land would probably make the top ten this film, for those of you who are not familiar with the plot, centers on Ryan Gosling, a jazz pianist named Sebastian, and Emma Stone is an aspiring actress named Mia, and they're basically two dreamers sort of trying to make their way in Los Angeles in their respective careers, and trying to trying to make it as struggling artists in a uh, in a world that that is simultaneously ripe with opportunities, but also sort of bereft with them, I guess. Uh, and I think the first, the first, uh, one of the first songs where Emma Stone's character is getting ready to go out to a party with her roommates, I think sort of sums up that whole, like, that promise of something out there for you, of, of a, a, you know, a, a new start or... That, that big break that you've been waiting for, but then simultaneously the melancholy that sort of builds up over time when when that, that big break doesn't come along. And the two of them have uh, similar but, but distinct enough approaches to wanting to make their career work that it, it uh, adds a nice layer of conflict into their relationship, sort of from the very beginning. I would say, and I think Chazelle layers that in there um, in kind of a, a subtle fashion uh, up front where it just becomes something, oh, something quirky difference between these two, and then as you go on, and the film is, is basically divided up into chapters for different seasons, so it starts in winter, and then it, it goes through, you know, spring, summer, fall, and then the epilogue is, is another winter, 
you know, down the line. Spoilers, you know, spoiler free. We're going to, we're trying to keep spoilers out of this. So, um, he does, a, he does a good job of, of chronicling that relationship in the context of their individual career goals. And um, having those two, those two aspects of their lives intersect in interesting ways where they encourage each other at certain points and also challenge each other at others. And I thought that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, who of course have worked together twice before in Gangster Squad, which I still have to see because I'd heard it was not very good, so I'm going to be checking that out soon, just because I, I love me some Gosling-Stone uh, chemistry. And Crazy Stupid Love, where I, I actually did do like that film quite a bit, and um, their storyline was one of the better aspects of it for me. They are, they are really, they're really magnetic on screen. I mean, individually, they're known for, for that. But I don't know, something about their, their two performance styles, where they're both, um, they're both sexy and sophisticated, but also kind of playful and almost childlike at times. It's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting counterpoint between the, the two of them and the way that they the way that they play off of each other. And I thought that La La Land probably captured that even better than Crazy Stupid Love. Um, of the two, I'd have to say Emma Stone probably did stand out for me even more so. I'd heard reviews beforehand that Gosling's performance was a little colder than Emma Stone. She was much, much more, um, her character was much more passionate, outwardly passionate, and much more... Um, much more sympathetic and easier for the audience to root for because ultimately Ryan Gosling is his character is the more flawed of the two and the journey that you end up sort of following through to um, to a greater sense of completion and again I'm trying to keep this vague for people that still have to see this and I highly recommend that you do um, is is Emma Stone's hers is the one that you 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 know you root for um, more strongly that whose side you're kind of on from the beginning, whereas Ryan Gosling's you're sort of you sort of weave in and out of how you feel about his approach to things, or is he being reasonable, or is he being stubborn, or you know does, should he uh, compromise in certain ways in his career and his personal life, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And yeah, and I found all that really interesting as someone who's obviously interested in the arts who writes about entertainment for a living, who, you know, has a YouTube channel and, and likes, you know, expressing their thoughts on culture and stuff, uh, and has artistic proclivities. That really, that really spoke to me and, uh, on an emotional level. I mean, Emma Stone has one of the best numbers in the film, all to herself. That would be the, those of you who have seen the film know exactly what I'm talking about before I even say it, but that would be the audition, um, The Fools Who Dream, and it, and it really encapsulates the message of the film. So it's going to be interesting. I know we're going to get to a little bit of Oscar nomination talk in a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see if the audition or City of Stars uh, triumphs. Uh, if one of those ends up winning for Best Original Song. Because I do feel like City of Stars is maybe more catchy. But I do feel like the audition song is the more emblematic of the two and the one that does serve as more of an anthem for for what the film has to say and and Chazelle has proved with Whiplash that he he uh he's able to cut to the heart of the the performer experience in a way that a lot of filmmakers don't really and I think La La Land really captures that um really captures that effectively and I think that song is is, is probably the, the one of the honestly probably one of the strongest moments of the film I mean I've I've listened to the soundtrack a few times since I saw the film which is just a few days ago and okay several times <laughs> it has, obviously I like the film a lot so the, that soundtrack's been a little bit a little bit on loop and has helped me sort of fine tune my my thought process and my reaction to the film so that I can explain it to you all a little bit better um, but that just listening to the audition song on the soundtrack um, sort of hits me emotionally and takes me back to a certain a certain mindset and a certain um, 
certain vibe that the film is going for. Um, so, you know, aside from just Gosling and Stone, you have some really uh, extravagant, lavish musical numbers. Another Day in the Sun being one of the prime, probably the prime example. That's one of the standout sequences that a lot of people are talking about that I had heard about before I saw the film. And, you know, going in, I was, you, you know, you reach one of those... You reach that point when you've heard a lot about a movie and then you finally see it, you're like, oh yeah, this is what everybody's talking about. Okay, I get it now. I, I understand. And that's that sort of was my response to La La Land as a whole, I'd say, as everybody's coming in being like, oh, those nuts, that, that ending is going to wreck you emotionally and so-and-so is so great and this this aspect of the production design and, and uh, you know, it's the front runner for all the Oscars and it's exactly, a lot of people were saying, and I sort of agree with this, um, a lot of people were saying that part of what will help the film and its Oscar chances will probably be the fact that with everything that's going on right now politically, a lot of people are really looking for escapism. And this film certainly delivers on that front. Um, I mean, I think, I think you know, a big musical like this is definitely has a leg up on something that's a little more grounded and heavier. Uh, like Moonlight or Manchester by the Sea. I think people want to be happy. They want to forget about everything that's happening right now. And then that, of course, extends to um, members of the Academy. Um, so, I mean, I, I understand why this film is getting such such love uh, in awards circles. I understand why critics uh, love it, because it is an homage to a, an era of Hollywood musical that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, we've had a few brushes with it probably in the last couple decades, I'd say maybe Moulin Rouge would be uh, would be a good example of that, um, but that's probably one of the closest. Hairspray had certain elements of it that were going. Obviously, it was set in the '60s, that were of a period piece. But as far as like this, like uh, you know, Gene Kelly style tap dancing, and like uh, a love story wrapped in, you know a Hollywood set musical it's it's very singing in the rain in a lot of in a lot of ways and if, you know that shouldn't of course of course shouldn't surprise anybody considering how impactful that film has been on cinema history um, but but yeah so La La Land uh, for me worked like gangbusters if I had to give it a rating I would probably say I'm leaning in a 4.5 right about now the performances the um, the visuals, and of course I don't mean visual effects because the film only costs $30 million. It's not like heavy on CG. It's just, um, just Chazelle has really cemented himself as a visionary filmmaker and one of those that uh, now anytime he comes out with any film, regardless, uh, I'm going to be interested to the point where, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan I'm not, is making a war film coming up and I'm not really huge into that genre necessarily. But if Christopher Nolan's doing it, I, I want to see it because I know it's going to be something different, something special, and something worthwhile. And now I sort of feel the same way about Chazelle, thanks to La La Land. Um, and, you know, we'll talk... I already touched a little bit about the Oscar stuff, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. So as for me, La La Land, uh, probably in my top ten of the year. Again, like I said, I still have other ones I want to get. I want to give a chance. But even though the film does have some weaknesses I do feel like the storyline is pretty basic the plot is pretty is pretty basic on a lot of levels as far as you know boy meets girl boy loves girl girl loves boy problems arise and are they gonna make it or not and um, but this kind of movie is not really this is I'm gonna say about La La Land what a lot of people I think were said about Mad Max Fury Road last year which is a weird comparison but they're two very different, but very, uh, very specific visions of a very certain, uh, a very particular kind of movie that's going for a very particular experience. And neither one was really about plot. They were about themes. They were about characters. They were about imagery. And I would say that they're both kind of equally effective in that regard. Um, if you've listened, you know, if you listened to the podcast before, you watched my video review on YouTube um, of Mad Max Fury Road, you know that 
I enjoy the film. I respect it, but I don't. It, I don't love it because I'm not huge into car chases. I have no connection to that franchise. Yes, I'm amazed at some of the things that they pulled off, but it doesn't. It doesn't speak to me. It doesn't resonate with me on any level, in the way that La La Land does. Being someone who's trying to be creative, who's trying to be artistic, who's trying to follow their dreams in some respects, um, La La Land is about all of that, and it's done. The it's executed so well from the performances, from Chazelle, Chazelle's writing, from the direction, from the visuals, production design, costumes, uh, all of that. The music is, is maybe, not as, maybe not as catchy as something like Sing Street because it's not meant to be radio friendly. It's not meant to, uh, it's not meant to be a top 40 single. It's more meant to serve the story at hand. And I think in that regard, it works, uh, it works really well within the film, and then if you've seen the film, it works really well to listen to the soundtrack, but like a lot of scores um, that, I, you know, that I've heard from films over the years, it doesn't really work, it won't really connect with you if you haven't seen it, if you don't have the story to put it in context, um, whereas something like you know, Sing Street, Drive It Like You Stole It, of course, it's a better experience if you've seen the, the film to listen to that song, but if you haven't seen the movie, you could still enjoy it and, and uh, you know, get behind the, the catchy rhythms and the, you know, the chorus and all that and sing along. I don't really see anybody jamming out to City of Stars just randomly without having seen the film. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, it, it's, not, it's not that kind of musical, I guess is my point. And that, for that, I respect it a whole lot more because it seems like most musicals nowadays are either... Uh, film adaptations of a play that has is just now being developed into a film after decades. I'm talking about stuff like Chicago, stuff like Phantom of the Opera, stuff like the well, producers wasn't decades, but the producers, Hairspray, things that have been on stage for years, and they're just now realizing, hey, you know what? We can turn this into a movie. Or they're jukes, jukebox musicals, and I'm talking about Rock of Ages. I'm talking about Moulin Rouge. I'm talking about uh, every episode of Glee ever. Uh, where they just take pop music and they decide to plug it into their own story. La La Land is neither. It's an original musical that, yes, is an homage to a, a certain genre, a certain era of Hollywood filmmaking, but it is is something fresh and original in an age where everything is sequels, remakes, reboots, revisits, reimaginings, re, re, re. And uh, for that, I, I think it, La La Land deserves an extra level of, of respect. And, uh, and, you know, that's just one of the many aspects and why I enjoyed it so much. So, again, like I said, I have to see more of the movies that are nominated for Oscars. But right now, uh, La La Land, if it ends up walking out of there with a bunch of awards, I, uh, I can't say that I'm going to be disappointed. All right, so the Oscar nominations came out this week, and you know that I always have thoughts about them. If you've subscribed to the Crooked Table YouTube channel, and I highly recommend that you do because I am planning on putting together some videos sometime in the near future, and I, I keep saying that, but I promise it's, uh, it's going to happen. At least, hey, at least you're getting a podcast episode, right? <laughs> you can go back and watch my video reaction to the Oscar nominations from last year. So this year I thought I would maybe take a different approach and just talk about it on the podcast. So I have the nominees printed out in front of me and I'm just going to kind of touch on uh, each category real fast. Not necessarily go over all the nominees. You can see that uh, online. It's like you don't need me to, to read you off the list of every single uh, sound mixing nominee. But I um, just wanted to give you sort of my reaction to each category. So as far as film, uh, well, I'm going to touch on some of the less, uh, you know, the less prominent, more technical categories and then sort of build up to the biggest ones. So for film editing, I'm going to say that it's probably likely to go to La La Land. You're going to hear me say that a lot because I do feel like the Academy giving it 14 nominations, which is tied for the record, I believe, with Titanic and All About Eve. That is a good sign that the film is very likely to win most of those, uh, that it has huge tremendous support from the academy and i sort of feel like if it does sweep it will probably take all of these but i would venture to say that for me for film editing i'm really kind of pushing for a rival 
just because those of you who have seen the film and know the, the third act twist or reveal, whichever, I don't know if it's 100% a twist because it's not like we thought, well, I guess, yeah, I guess we did think something. Okay, it's a twist slash reveal. Um, I would say that Arrival really deserves that because the film editing was a tremendous uh, integral part of what made that film work in the end and sort of tie it all together in an interesting and surprising way that I think a lot of people really responded to. So for foreign language film, I'm thinking, I have not seen any of these, I have to admit, um, but I've heard the most about Tony Erdman, so I'm going to say that Tony Erdman's probably going to win. Um, I know Elle was disqualified, that's the film that Isabel Huppert is nominated for, for Best Actress. I think that's kind of strange, I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, I don't know if it didn't play in enough theaters, or if there's... It wasn't released during the right window or something, but then I wonders. But then, if that's the case, I wonder why she was nominated, but the film wasn't. That's it didn't make the shortlist for some reason, even though it's one of the foreign language films I'd heard the most about this year. I'm not 100%. What's up with that? But I would say Tony Erdman probably um, for makeup and hairstyling. I just don't want it to be Suicide Squad, guys, because I I have a complicated relationship with that film. Um, you can hear the, the episode where Kai and I talked about that in depth. And uh, I don't hate it, but it's not very good, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Uh, it, it, to me, it's, very, it's a very much a guilty pleasure movie. Um, I do find elements of it entertaining, mostly Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and Will Smith's Deadshot, Viola Davis as Amanda Waller. Um, and I, I find it interesting to watch what Jared Leto is doing as the Joker, but uh, I don't know if it works. And I don't think that I really want to hear the phrase the Oscar-winning film Suicide Squad um, ever. And the fact that that's nominated here and Deadpool isn't, which we'll mention again, I'm sure, in a little bit. And the fact that Captain America Civil War really isn't, I don't think, for anything. Yeah, not for anything. Uh, I think that's kind of absurd. And yes, I guess some of it... I guess some of the makeup in that film was effective but i wouldn't say it's oscar oscar worthy so for um let's see let's go to production design i, I think that's got to be la la land because that film with some of the musical numbers i'd mentioned earlier like another day in the sun with some of the backdrops with the dance and the stars with the the uh, the vision that it creates of Los Angeles, a Los Angeles filled with dreamers, but like, you know, an idealistic version of that city and that, that reality. Um, I thought that was hands down probably the best of these films that I've seen of the nominees. Again, I haven't seen, it looks like of these, I have not seen Passengers, but I've seen all the other ones. Fantastic Beasts, I would say that would probably be my second choice because I did think that was probably the best part of that film, which did not really work for me on a story level. Uh, let's see, let's do the, the shorts. I'm tempted to always go with Pixar for animated short film, but I know that Borrowed Time, which I've just heard, I just heard about a lot recently, uh, I really need to see that. So there's a very good chance that might win, but I feel like more of the Academy members and more people in general will have, would have seen Piper, which was the animated film of the little, the little bird on the beach that played before Finding Dory, which was one of the highest grossing movies last year. So I feel like just based on exposure, and as well as quality of animation and everything, I do feel like Piper would probably sneak in there. And it's been a long time since Pixar has won in this animated short category. I believe it's been since 2001. I don't know if that was for Presto or not. I don't have that, uh, that information in front of me. But I have to imagine that they're way past due because, yeah, their films now are, are still solid, but they're not, with the exception of Inside Out, they haven't really knocked one out of the park in a, in a while. Finding Dory was good, but it wasn't great. It wasn't uh, Inside Out, Toy Story 3, great. So, um, you know, they've been really, they've been doing pretty good in the short department, though. And I, I feel like Piper was a good example of that. For live action, short film, I have no idea. Uh, but time code sounds cool, so let's go with that. Um, for sound editing, sound mixing. <sighs> for sound editing, I kind of feel like it's probably going to go with, I feel like a lot of times this goes with either war films or disaster films, but Arrivals, uh, I feel like it might go Hacksaw Ridge, but then again, if La La Land gets 
gets the momentum over the uh, course of the evening and really kind of takes over everything, I could see La La Land easily taking that one as well. For sound mixing, I think I probably want to go with Rogue One, a Star Wars story, just because not only is that a war film, but it's a sci-fi fantasy space epic. So I feel like uh, that movie had a lot more stuff going on. But again, you have Hacksaw Ridge and La La Land in there. So we'll see what's happening with that. As far as, let's see, let's go to visual effects. I find it really interesting that Kubo and the Two Strings is nominated. I don't know. I think like that, I think I feel like that's one of the only times that an animated film has ever been nominated for visual effects. And I know that this one specifically was sort of a hybrid of stop motion as well as uh, CG, just to augment certain things, the backgrounds and some of the animation, things like that. So I think that, that that's an interesting choice. I don't think it's gonna win for it. And I don't think Deepwater Horizon, Rogue One, uh, either one of those is gonna get it either. Honestly, I feel like Doctor Strange is cool, but I feel like it's very inception-y, and I feel like Academy members are going to feel like they've seen that kind of thing before. But the Jungle Book, we've never seen... Uh, I believe it was blue screen. I want to say blue screen. We've never seen blue screen films and CG to that extent, where it's literally just an actor in the studio, and they create an entire jungle of creatures and everything. So I feel like that one has that locked down, and honestly, that's the one I'll be rooting for the hardest, because it did feel the most groundbreaking and sort of pioneering of this bunch uh, and you know a formula that worked so well that it made almost a billion dollars at the box office and they're doing a lot of live action quote live action um, Lion King in the same in the same uh, style so that's exciting for people that enjoyed that movie which I did moving over to music let's get into original score I know that Mika Levy was nominated for Jackie and she also did the score for Under the Skin I don't think she's going to get this one just because I feel like her approach to music is really different and sort of out there and probably kind of divisive. Um, and I'm kind of flabbergasted that Passengers was nominated. I mean, I know that I know that, that he's a great composer and all that, but it's also uh, that film was not well received anywhere across the board. And it's strange for the score to shine, the score and the production design for that film to shine out above everything else considering that I don't really think anybody cared for it that I really heard about. So I have to say that that one's probably obviously going to go to La La Land. Um, although, you know, you never know, things, something might uh, surprise you and you might get a, you might get a, a random, a random uh, lion win or moonlight. But it's just it's unfortunate for my end, it's unfortunate that uh, Johan Johansson's score for Arrival was disqualified because it uses uh, pre-existing music sort of prominently because I did feel like that he's really one of the strongest composers right now. He's done some great work with Denis Villeneuve in uh, films like uh, Sicario. And I was kind of hoping that it would get at least a nomination. But, you know, such is the way of things. Now, when we come over to song, this gets really interesting because, first of all, there's no goddamn Sing Street which, as you all know, really pisses me off. Because I love that film with a fiery passion. So instead we got Justin Timberlake and his Trolls song, Can't Stop the Feeling, which we knew that was going to happen. But the real surprise is The Empty Chair from Jim's, Jim the James Foley story, which I've never even heard of. And it's one of those random documentary songs that's, that just kind of snuck on there and not... Knocked my beloved Sing Street out of the way. So, of the ones that remain, it's, it's really hard for me to, to say. Um, I, was, I really liked Moana and How Far I'll Go was the song that I leaned over to Kai when we were watching it and I said, this is going to be the best original song winner. And I thought that that would be the case to a point, but now that La La Land looks like it's taking everything over, I wonder if one of those songs audition the fools who dream or city of stars is going to sneak in there and well not sneak in there is going to sweep up that category as well as most of the others and um kind of walk away with it or if it's going to split the vote and leave it open for moana to to get a win because 
Honestly, Moana's facing some stiff competition from, ironically, Disney over in the other category that we'll get to in a moment. So this might be its best chance at getting a, a, a win if it doesn't uh, elsewhere. So as far as writing, adapted screenplay, I would really like to see a rival get it just because um, the film is probably not going to get anything else. Amy Adams, well, we'll get to that. And I really find it heartening the message that the film is trying to send about communication, about positivity, about working together, about being, it's very pro-science, it's very humanitarian, it's very uh, humanist in a lot of its ideals, and I feel like that uh, is, a, is a story that we should be celebrating now, and um, kind of putting on a pedestal. Same thing for Hidden Figures, honestly, because uh, if you read my review on WeGotThisCovered.com, I basically praised that film for a lot of the same reasons that I just mentioned for Arrival. It had a really positive message. It had really, uh, it shed light on a true story that nobody really knew. And it, uh, it's kind of infused with a sense of optimism and hope. And that's, that's something we sorely need right now in a lot of different ways. So, you know, plus this is its best chance to win in this category because it's not going to get supporting actress and it's not going to get picture. So it, would, it wouldn't upset me that much if it actually walked away with that one. Although with Moonlight, Fences, and Lion in there, um, I think it's probably more likely that one of those is going to walk away with it. As far as original screenplay, I'd say this is kind of anyone's game. Um, I have seen most of these in the category, and I think it's probably most likely going to go to Kenneth Lonergan from Manchester by the Sea. Um, but I, I don't really, this is actually a category I don't really feel that, like La La Land should win. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, the story is not really the strong suit there. It's really more the acting, the visuals, the music. And considering how, how strong some of the competition is here, Hell or High Water, the Lobster, which is a really bonkers movie that didn't 100% work for me. Didn't 100% work for me, but uh, is one that I admi admire nonetheless. And something that I think is definitely very different and, and uh, you know, worth commending for that. But yeah, so, so I'd say for original screenplay, it's definitely going to go to Manchester by the Sea, in my estimation. Moving on to some of the other categories. So let's go cinematography. That's going to be La La Land. I mean, come on. Seriously? I, I, I mean, even my wife, who's not 100%, uh, okay, not at all the, the cinephile that I am, even she was like, the cinematography in this movie is really good. And for that to stand out to her, I think that that's going to get to the eyes of a lot of Academy members. And uh, it's, not, it's just another category that could get caught up in the La La Land sweep, honestly. For costume design... Again, it could go La La Land, but I honestly, I'm just happy to see Fantastic Beasts on here. Because yes, even though I did not particularly care for that film that much, I, uh, I did think that the production design, the costume design, was some of, the, uh, some of the better aspects of it. So I would like to, you know, if that happens to win, I'm not going to be like thrilled because I'm not really rooting for that film that much. But if it happens to win, I would be fine with it. But it, honestly, you can see that one going to Jackie. Just because Jackie O is best known for her fashion sense. She's sort of a fashion icon as a first lady. Um, especially in the days after her husband's uh, assassination. So I could probably, honestly, if La La Land doesn't get that, I probably think Jackie will. So, um, documentary feature. That's a tricky one because I've heard a lot about most of these. I would say it's probably going to go to either O.J. Made in America or 13th, the documentary from Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay, sorry, I had to, I spaced for a second. Um, I was like, the director of Selma, damn it, what's her name? Uh, it's from Ava DuVernay, so I think that it might go to her, especially since she did get a lot of support for Selma just a couple years ago, and a lot of people might see this as further proof to just how strong a filmmaker she is and how strong a perspective she brings to the, 
to uh, to the screen, so I can see I can see 13th sneaking in there. As far as documentary short subject, I mean it's pretty much like live action short film, and that I have no idea. I uh, haven't seen any of these, so I'd have to say probably let's just go with Extremis because it makes me think of Iron Man 3, and uh, you know that's fun. Um, so let's see, let's move on to animated feature film. All right, so I really love me some Leica. And Kubo and the Two Strings is not necessarily my favorite film of theirs. I'd say it's probably my probably my second or third favorite of theirs. But it uh, it has accomplished some tremendous things visually, and it's got a really strong story and really uh, dynamic dynamic characters. However, let's break it down. This is pretty much a battle between Disney and Disney. Um, I personally preferred Zootopia to Moana, just because I felt like there was more subtext to it. The story was richer. The characters were more. Um, not more engaging, but the characters, basically the story was stronger to me. I think the subtext was there, whereas Moana was pretty straightforward, hero's journey, uh, adventure tale, sort of a quest for relics, kind of like Kubo. Uh, those two films have some of that in common. Um, but, yeah, so I would be going, I'm leaning more towards Zootopia, but if Moana happens to win, hey, I'm fine with that. And if Kubo and the Two Strings happens to win, it's the first win for Laika. And they've been nominated for this three times before, so uh, that would be also be well-deserved. And it maybe would help them get a little more funding, a little more attention for some of their projects. Because Kubo did not do nearly as well at the box office as it really should have. I'm just really happy for this category to see, um, to not see, rather, some of the terrible animated films that were released this year. Sneaking in there. Um, and that would mostly be talking about Secret Life of Pets, which I was really kind of nervous would sneak in there, just because it was such a huge hit and sort of cast a pail over the box office this summer, as well as Trolls, Angry Birds, Ratchet and Clank. I mean, there was, I didn't see Sing, but I heard it was crappy, and I didn't see Storks, but I heard it was decent, so. But nevertheless, none of those really posed any threat. This was pretty much between Kubo and the two Disney films. Going into supporting roles, I mean, actress in a supporting role, this is all about Viola Davis. I mean, let's break it down. She's been nominated for this twice before. People watch her every week on How to Get Away with Murder. Um, it, it, it's time for her to, to get one of these. Especially since this is essentially a lead actress performance that they just campaigned for supporting actress. Just because they knew the actress race would be a lot tighter. And I think that was a smart move. Because I think she might have gotten... Not necessarily squeezed out of the nomination, but I don't think she might have... There was a lot, much lower chance that she was going to actually walk away with it. And you never know, the Oscars always throw us curveballs, but at this point I'd say her winning is probably the safest of the four acting uh, categories. And I just also want to point out, I think it's weird that Octavia Spencer is nominated in there. Not because she's bad, she's a great actress, but just because um, you know she did a similar thing in The Help, and I feel like if you were going to nominate some supporting actress from Hidden Figures, that it really should have been uh, Janelle Monet. Between this and Moonlight, she's had a really strong start to her film career. She was a really, uh, kind of, it was kind of a star-making performance for her in Hidden Figures. And I feel like if you're going to recognize somebody from there that wasn't Taraji P. Henson, and we'll get there in a second, um, I, I feel like they, they made the wrong choice, in my estimation. Um, so let's go to uh, Supporting Actor. Kind of like Viola Davis, I'd say this is pretty much nearly a lock for Mahershala Ali. Uh, thankfully, considering uh, most of the film journalist community and uh, you know the cinephiles out there, we're sort of mystified that Aaron Taylor Johnson. That's a hard name to say. Uh, you wouldn't think so when you're trying to talk really fast and uh, and cover a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. That's uh, it. Kind of gets stuck on your tongue. But Aaron Taylor Johnson, the fact that he was nominated, let alone won the Golden Globe for this category. I think a lot of people were sort of taken aback by that. I'm like, what? How did that happen? Um, so it makes a lot more sense that Michael Shannon got the nomination here since he is um, essentially beloved for a lot of his film work over the years. I mean, he got a lot of great reviews for Midnight Special uh, last year as well. So uh, that makes sense that he sort of snuck onto here. Um, but let's... I think it's pretty much Mahershala Ali. I also want to point out that I would have preferred Ben Foster over Jeff Bridges' nomination for Hell or High Water, just because Jeff Bridges has played that kind of character multiple times before, more effectively, and um, I, I don't. I feel like Ben Foster is one of those underrated talents that really deserve to get recognized here. 
and it's kind of frustrating to me that they Oscar just went with the old standby so let's go over to lead actress and I think right now the smart money is on Emma Stone for La La Land um, with the close second being Natalie Portman for Jackie and maybe a dark horse for Isabel Huppert I, uh, I think we're all sort of shocked that not shocked because it's deserving, but I think it's a, it's a pleasant uh, surprise that Ruth Nega mentioned, uh, made it onto the nominations. I think a lot of people thought she might have gotten pushed off just because this is such a highly contested race right now. But I think she is a great actress. That's a great performance, and I think she's worthy of inclusion here. But um, Emma Stone's probably, probably the most likely to win. I mean, she's been nominated before for Birdman. Everybody loves her. She's got that whole ingenue thing going on that Oscar loves so much. I mean, they did give it to Brie Larson last year, after all. So um, I think that Emma Stone is probably going to become an Oscar winner this year. And let's just point out the fact that Amy Adams was left off of here, which is absurd. Um, I, like I said, this was a really tough race. I'm sure she probably was number six on this list. Um, but she really, I mean, come on. She really deserved that spot that... Once again, went to Meryl Streep. Uh, I mean, she's she's a great actress. She's legendary, but she's got three Oscars already. She's been nominated like a bazillion times, and she, this is not. I mean, this is a good performance, but it's nothing. It's nothing that should have knocked Amy Adams or Taraji P Henson or a number of other worthy actresses out of there. I mean, we've all seen Meryl Streep do great work before. It would have been a little nice if Oscar would have spread the love. It just it gets frustrating when you see the same people nominated, not necessarily because they were the best out there right now, but just because of their people that Oscar is familiar with, like Jeff Bridges, like Meryl Streep. So, um, so yeah, Emma Stone probably going there for lead actor. For lead actor, I'd say it's still probably leaning towards Casey Affleck, even though there's a whole controversy going on around sexual harassment. Um, scandal with him that has a lot of people feeling like like the Academy should have taken a stand and not given him the nomination to begin with. Um, I mean, that's all a matter of, you know, uh, personal choice, whether you're able to look past, uh, uh, you know, uh, performers' personal life and their decisions and their art and their performance. And uh, I think Casey Affleck is probably this year's version of that. And a lot of people, you know, think that Birth of a Nation was kind of squeezed out because, because of a similar issue. Um, even though Birth of a Nation didn't really make it into these nominees, nominations at all. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the controversy and the scandal surrounding all of that. Um, but so Casey Affleck will probably squeeze through with a win. But then you also have a lot of people talking about Andrew Garfield and, of course, Ryan Gosling. Who gets caught up in the whole La La Land uh, fervor. So that's very possible um, as well. It, I mean, 14 nominations, like tying for the record. It could easily be a uh, best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, best screenplay, and kind of win everything. Um, that that doesn't usually happen. I think I think it's been probably a couple of decades since all four or five of those have gone to the same film. I think uh, Silence of the Lambs might be the last one for all five if you count screenplay, but. Um, best Actor and Actress, we had uh, Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson back in the 90s that won for As Good As It Gets. So it's possible that you might see something here, especially since especially since both performances are so entwined and so integral to the film. It's not really a one character sort of piece, it's more about how they play off of each other. So if Emma Stone ends up winning, um, there's a very good chance that Ryan Gosling will come along for the ride. And uh, you can never count out Denzel, of course. So I think the only person here you probably can count out as uh, not winning at all is Viggo Mortensen just because Captain Fantastic was see so little seen in theaters and I feel like it's it's kind of impressive that it managed to squeeze on this list to begin with considering it is uh, more obscure of a film compared to some of these other ones that are nominated for multiple awards this year um, but yeah also no Ryan Reynolds but it's like would it have been? Would it, does he do a great performance in that film? Yeah, yeah, he does. He's perfect for that role, and he brings a lot more depth to it than you would think. But if anybody that seriously thought that Ryan Reynolds was going to get a Best Actor nomination for Deadpool, you were—I think you were kidding yourselves. That's 
we're not there yet, and it's not the type of film that the Academy would take seriously, even though, yes, it's, it is great, and it's super entertaining, and it's a lot of fun. We're talking about the same organization that nominates Meryl Streep every time she makes a movie, and I do think that her Golden Globe speech, which was very well received in that room, was very well received in some circles, depending on your politics, maybe not so. But uh, within Hollywood, I think they really loved the message that she had to send, and I think that's probably what put her in to uh, on top over Amy Adams. So we have two more categories, the last two. Can you believe it? It's been a long ride. Um, for directing, I think this is probably Damien Chazelle's to lose. Uh, if Moonlight ends up with enough love here, and it did have the second highest number of nominations with eight, I believe, uh, it is possible that they might split and La La Land will get piss picture or piss, pisser if it's, if it's not the gear kind of thing. Uh, and Moonlight can take director for Barry Jenkins. But after the love for Whiplash, it's going to be tough to beat Damien Chazelle here just because he does have such a strong eye and a strong style as a filmmaker. Uh, whereas Barry Jenkins is a little more being discovered this year by that film. Um, but personally, I would also love to see Denis Villeneuve get in there just because he's been doing some stellar work. And, uh, you know, Blade, Blade Runner 40, uh, 2049 might just might be the blockbuster. Well, he already has the blockbuster hit with Arrival, I guess. But, like, the franchise film, he needs to become, like, the next Nolan, the next uh, Spielberg type uh, on that level of filmmaker. So I would love to see him get it. But if Chazelle gets it, I'm fine with that as well. Like I said, I haven't seen Moonlight, so I can't speak to uh, Barry Jenkins and whether I'm, or not I'm really rooting for him. But based on what I've heard, it's an amazing film, so I mean, I guess that could work too. Alright, so we have Best Picture. And I haven't really gone through the nominations list format for the other categories, but I'm going to do it here because this is the big one. So, we have Arrival, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. And like I said, I, I do think that Hidden Figures and Arrival are the messages that we need right now. Hell or High Water definitely speaks to where we are right now politically in some ways. Um, Hacksaw Ridge appeals to the, uh, the conservative mindset, the, uh, the Trump supporters, the, the, um, the Republican Party um, type people. And Fences is, you know, Denzel, it's a period piece. It's got a lot of clout behind it. Lion is one of the, probably one of the least seen on here, I would think, but has a lot of nominations elsewhere, so could 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 be a, a contender, but I highly, highly doubt it. And Manchester by the Sea seems like it's too small of a movie to walk away with the top prize, more like the get screenplay or something like that. So I would say this is, again, between Moonlight as probably the underdog and La La Land, probably likely to win it as of now. I mean, granted, we're about a month away, from the ceremony, so there's the chance that one of the other films could sort of bump up in the race, but right now it seems does seem like La La Land is sort of unstoppable. And of the four films that I have seen, Arrival, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, and La La Land, La La Land, I mean, if that wins, I'm fine with it. Um, I do feel like my second choice of the ones I've seen, again, and I will have seen all of these by Oscar night, is probably Arrival just because uh, sci-fi films don't usually win Best Picture, and I think that would be a nice change of pace. Amy Adams was terrific, gave a terrific performance in it, and like I said, the film has a message that we all need to hear right now, and winning Best Picture would get a lot more eyes and ears on that message. So those are my picks for, uh, for Oscar night. The ceremony is going to be airing live on uh, Sunday, February 26th at 7 o'clock Eastern. So definitely tune in. I'll, I will be. I'll probably be uh, live tweeting it to a certain extent. And uh, let me know which nominations you were happy with, which nominations you were disappointed by. What, what do you, what film was your, what film did you really want to see nominated this year that didn't get nominated at all? And I have a feeling that some of that will be Deadpool, but that's cool. I understand. Was, we got Suicide Squad nominated. So you're allowed to be a little pissed if Deadpool didn't get anything. Sound editing, something. Um, and of course that was not meant to disparage the work that the sound editors do. I'm just saying in the grand scheme of things, it's one of the, uh, one of the less prominent, more technical categories. So, um, you can find more podcasts, reviews, 
videos and other movie-related goodies on crookedtable.com. Find me on Twitter, at crookedtable. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, pretty much anywhere you need your social media fix. Uh, there is usually a Crooked Table account. If not, uh, send me an email, robert at crookedtable.com, and be like, hey, why you ain't on, uh, you know, why you not on Reddit or, or uh, I don't even know what your kids are doing these days. <laughs> Reach out to me, let me know, and I can make that happen. Um, next episode, I'm not 100% sure what it's going to cover. I'm still trying to work that out. But I'm trying to get, you know, some kind of a pattern here. The reason for the uh, bigger gap in between episodes than I would hope is mostly just because I haven't seen anything. And, uh, you know, raising a newborn and trying to get my, my own work done, it's hard to make time sometimes to squeeze out a podcast episode. So, you know, uh, sound quality has to suffer sometimes a little bit so that I can make sure I get some content out to you guys. But it's this is fun for me to do, and I, I like... Uh, I like putting putting my thoughts out into the ether and seeing if any of you have to respond. So, uh, like I said, hit me up on social media, cricktable.com, and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you guys soon. That's it for this episode. Roll credits. Oh, I sort of feel like if this is a La La Land episode, I should sing that. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. C-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>